We'll be in John chapter 17 this morning. John chapter 17 as we continue through John's gospel account. The entirety of this chapter is the Lord's Prayer, what I would call the true Lord's Prayer. And just to remind you where we are at chronologically, the next event after this prayer will be Jesus and the 11 remaining disciples crossing over the brook Kidron, going into the Garden of Gethsemane, where Christ will pray again and then be betrayed into the hands of sinners by Judas Iscariot. So let's begin this morning, John chapter 17, we'll read verses 1 through 5. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. So far in this chapter, we've covered verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Jesus asked the Father to glorify Him in order that He might glorify the Father in return. And to me, it is a very humbling thought that as Jesus is about to be beaten and crucified for us, that His concern turns to God getting the glory through it all. And we know God would get the glory for it all because God fulfilled His promises in sending us a Savior, sending us the Messiah. And so God's going to get the glory through this. And I believe through Christ's example there in verse 1, we need to learn that kind of humility in our life. We need to learn that this is not about us. Amen. It's all about God getting the glory. And we need to get to the place where we understand that it's not about how people perceive us. Now, we're concerned about our testimony and those kind of things. But ultimately, and I've tried, to, I've tried to get people to this point of understanding that when you get to the place where it no longer matters what other people think and that you just have a clear conscience with God, it's very liberating. And so we just need to learn this kind of humility to where our life just needs to glorify the Father. Then last week in verse 2, we saw how Jesus has the power to save whosoever will come to Him for salvation in Christ alone with childlike faith looking for Christ for salvation. We concluded last week by highlighting how we are God's gift to Christ. We are the reward of Christ's suffering. And that is such a wonderful thought. We are God's gift to Christ. For today, what do you think about when you think about eternal life? What is eternal life? When does eternal life begin? Who can have eternal life? Can you have eternal life? Is it earned? Is it a free gift? And it's more difficult than you would think to find a secular answer to the definition of what is eternal life. Most dictionaries will only define one word at a time. And so to find a definition for eternal life, I went online, I searched for eternal life definition or something to that effect. There were actually several sites that did give a definition, but they all gave the same definition. I'm I'm talking about this secularly right now. They all defined eternal life as life without beginning or ending. And this is about all you're going to come up with if you look for a secular point of view on what eternal life is. I was looking at the 
looking for a Christian definition, and there are a lot out there. One was, don't criticize me for this, okay, but it's always the first thing that comes up, and I'm lazy like that. And so Wikipedia, under the Christian view of eternal life, the first sentence reads, eternal life traditionally refers to continued life after death. Now, if somebody were to come to you knowing that you are a Christian, knowing that you are a believer, and they were to ask you, what is eternal life? What answer would you give them? I think many believers, if they are asked that question, tend to answer something to this effect. Eternal life is going to heaven to live with God for all eternity. You would hear some sort of variation of that. If you have ever been asked, if you are ever asked in the future, what is eternal life? I want to encourage you to point people to John 17.3. It's the one place in the Bible that very clearly states what eternal life is. And so if somebody's looking for a definition, an explanation of what eternal life is, this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So what is eternal life? Clearly, it's knowing God. Now, the questions I asked at the beginning of this sermon, we're going to get to next week at the Lord's will, because this sermon took a complete change of direction last night. I was up till early this morning finishing it. I didn't intend to go in this direction, but stay with me, please. Many times, the emphasis in eternal life is given as heaven. But according to John 17, 3, the emphasis of eternal life is God Himself. Many times we promote salvation as going to a place. And that has its place in the conversation. I'm not against that. But we have to be careful not to overemphasize going to a place. We ask things like, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? Well, anybody with any common sense is going to say, sure. Now, there are cantankerous people out there who will want to argue with you just for the fun of arguing. But those who are being genuine will say, yeah, I I would rather go to heaven than go to hell. Sometimes we ask, are you sure if you were to die today, if you'd go to heaven? It's a good question. And I believe that question needs to be asked. But please understand what I'm about to say. Christ did not die just to take you to heaven. Christ died for you to be reconciled to God. Christ died because He wants to have a relationship with you. And if all we do is boil it down to, well, don't you want to go to heaven? We miss the aspect of God is the central focus who wants to have the relationship with us and this is life eternal that they might know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If you search your Bible, you will never find a place where a plea is made to the lost to come to Christ so that they may go to heaven. The early church didn't use that. Therefore, we got to be careful in using this approach to try and show people their need for Christ. In Paris Reedhead's sermon, Ten Shekels in a Shirt, He equates the idea of focusing people to their need to go to heaven as humanism having infiltrated the church. Humanism is 
what can I get out of God? And we inadvertently bypass the severity of our crimes against a holy God. In sinning against Him, and then we minimize the punishment that justly awaits those who reject Christ. This brand of Christianity is one where God owes you. And with that kind of thinking, you're never going to get to the place where you serve God because He saved your wretched, miserable soul. And God just becomes this Santa Claus in the sky. And really, it's kind of like the modern day prosperity gospel movement, which says if you just name it and claim it, then God has to come through for you. Because God owes you. We've got to be careful with this. I believe this is why so many people who make a profession of faith, who did so only because they wanted to enter heaven, oftentimes we don't see them follow the Lord and believer's baptism. We don't see them get anchored in a good church. We don't see them go on to serve God. You see, because the idea was pitched this way, God wants you to be happy. And in order for you to be happy, you want to go to this place called heaven. And eternal life becomes a place and not a person. Now, if you've been in Baptist circles long enough, you've likely been in a church or heard of a church where maybe every week somebody will get up who serves in a particular area of ministry and they will come forward and they will tell you how many people they led to Christ that week. And and I hate to say that it sounds like a competition, but it often kind of does because what probably inadvertently ends up happening is somebody will get up and say, I led 15 people to the Lord. I led 20 people to the Lord. And then the poor chump who only led three people to the Lord were like, what a letdown. But that's three people who got saved. And so it just is kind of odd. And I've been on that side of it where the focus is the place. And I'm telling you from personal experience, you can knock the door and you can explain who you are, where you're from, and you can ask the question, do you want to go to heaven? And a lot of times people will say, well, sure. And you can get them to the place of admitting they want to go to heaven. But what we tend to bypass is the fact that we are all sinners. Not just sinners, but we are deserving of God's wrath. Well, a lot of people don't like that. And we have to have a proper understanding of heaven and hell. Because it will come up in conversations as we speak to the lost. And it should come up. I understand all that. And I want you to know I'm not being overly critical. But I want to suggest to you, instead, if you're going to broach the topic of salvation to the lost, instead of going to heaven, I want to suggest to you this morning, you need to talk about hell. Start with hell, not heaven. Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, is often referred to when people are trying to describe the spiritual climate of the first great awakening in the colonies during the 1730s through the 1750s. And in short, it was a sermon about hell and how mankind is deserving to be cast into hell by a just God. 
And it was reported in those days, as Jonathan Edwards would preach his sermon, that it was not uncommon for him to be interrupted during the preaching, for people to cry out and say, what shall I do to be saved? And you see, that kind of preaching and calling people to come to Christ was not so that they could go to heaven, but it was because they deserved hell. Say, well, people don't like the idea of hell. I know, I'm going to get into that this morning. But we cannot shy away from what the Bible says about it. Unless they cry out to God for salvation, then they would rightly be cast into hell at the end of this life for having rejected all that Christ did for them. Now, what happened over time, because people didn't like this idea, is textual criticism began to sweep through America in the 1800s came over from Germany and Europe in the 1700s. And what happened during that time in America was God and hell became at odds with one another. And the prevailing thought within the textual criticism movement was this. How can a loving God send people to hell? Have you heard that one? Now I want you to get this. Notice in our text verse in John 17, 3, that it says, And this is life eternal, that they might know Thee, the only true God. That's going to be the focus this morning. I did not intend to go down this road. And for you, those of you who are here week after week, you know I don't often do this kind of thing. But what took place when people stopped believing the Bible definition of hell, and even heaven to different degrees, is they had to then make a God which lined up with their idea of who they thought God should be. What His characteristics should be. What kind of a God is a God of love? I know, a God of love could never have a place called hell that people who reject His Son would go to. And in the 1800s, as this began to sweep through America, religions began to crop up all over the place that are still taking root today. And I'm going to name those here real quick, five of them. In the late 1700s, it, it was founded, but it became rooted in the early 1800s was Christian universalism. And then in the Latter-day Saints, or the Mormons, began in the 1820s. The Seventh-day Adventists traced back to the 1830s under the Millerites, but they were founded in 1863. Christian Science was founded in the 1870s, and Jehovah's Witnesses were founded in the 1870s. Why is it that all of this cropped up in one century? It was because of this. We don't like the idea of hell. Now stay with me, please. In the wake of textual criticism, all five of those religions forsook the biblical teaching on hell, and thereby they made God into their liking, and they left the only true God. And so today, there's all kinds of opinions, there's all kinds of teachings, that if you were to set out to seek for, what is eternal life? What does it mean? How do I, all these questions that I asked at the beginning, and you seek out to find that, you're going to find all these different ideas because all these different religions became accepted. And here's the bummer of it all. They became accepted under the umbrella of Christianity. They're called Christian and they're not. Now, the reason I'm making mention of this is because if we're going to talk about eternal life, then we have to ask ourselves, why is there a need for eternal life? Why is there a need for eternal life? If we are saved, what are we being saved from? 
this may sound elementary to some of you, but corruption at the base level of fundamental truths leads to a domino effect of falsehood, which will then have to permeate the entire religious teaching. False teaching about hell in religions is what has led to false teaching about God and eternal life. If we are going to rightly discuss eternal life, then we need to know the truth about eternity. We need to know the truth about heaven and hell. If one corrupts the clear teaching of hell as found in the Bible because they don't like the idea of a literal hell, then one is forced to change who God is. Because without a literal hell, what exactly is the wrath which Jesus Christ came to save us from? So here's what happens. Someone doesn't like the idea of a literal hell and a literal lake of fire well, where there will be an eternal fire and an eternal punishment for those who have rejected Christ. Then in order to get around that, they must conform God into what they think He should be. And as I hinted at a moment ago, you will typically hear something to this effect. Well, I believe... Let me say that. Let me emphasize that one more time. Well, I believe that God is a God of love and that He would never condemn any to hell for all eternity. Now, what does your Bible say? It says that he that doesn't have the Son is condemned already. Despite the Bible being absolutely clear on this issue, the desire to worship a God of their choosing corrupted the Bible doctrine of hell. For the sake of this message, I'm only going to quickly mention these five and again, I'm only mentioning them because they fall under the banner of Christianity. Christian universalism. They believe all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. Because every person is the divine offspring of God and God is the loving parent of all people. They believe, listen, this is stuff I get from their website, okay? This is not my opinion. They believe all humanity is destined to be raised up from imperfection to maturity, and at last, every individual of the human race shall become holy and happy. And therefore, no human being will be condemned or allowed to suffer pain and separation forever. In other words, they believe in an afterlife without the possibility of an eternal punishment in hell. The Mormons, and again, I don't like to rail on religion, so just bear with me. The Mormons teach we all had a pre-mortal existence in heaven before we came to this earth. But the reason you don't know that is because there's a veil of forgetfulness on your mind. But you actually existed before you existed on this earth. And I'm going to try to keep this as simple as I can. But depending on how your mortal life, depending on how you received truth, how you dealt with truth revealed to you, after death, you will go to a place called the spirit world. Where in the spirit world, you will be put into one of two different places. You'll either go to a place called paradise, or you'll go to a place called prison. For those who rejected the message while on earth, they will be placed into the spirit world, the, the side that's called prison. Which they say is only a temporal state in which the spirits of the deceased persons will be taught the gospel be given another opportunity to repent and accept the ordinances of salvation. Then, at the resurrection, there will be one final judgment where those who have become sons of perdition, those are those who still rejected, even after being in spirit prison, those who become sons of perdition, they will be cast into what they call outer darkness. 
There is no fire. There is no burning. There is no eternal punishment like the Bible says. Just outer darkness where the glory of God is absent. Then, depending on works on earth, there are three different degrees of glory that those who are not cast in outer darkness will be rewarded after the final judgment. And again, you've got to understand heaven and hell. They will teach that the highest degree of glory is called the celestial kingdom. The middle degree is called the terrestrial kingdom. And the lowest degree they call the telestial kingdom. And it would take far too much time to try to explain all this to you. And I probably already bored half of you to death. But it would take too much time to tell you how you get into each kingdom and what you have to do and all this kind of stuff. But to illustrate how unbiblical this teaching is, you can still get to the middle and lowest degrees of glory having rejected Christ in this mortal life. So long as you receive the message while in the spirit world after death. The point is, Mormonism rejects the idea of hell. That's what I'm trying to connect to you. There's only one true God. And if you change hell, you change God. Vice versa. So Mormonism rejects the idea of hell as taught in the Bible. And because they reject the teaching of hell, they have in turn created a different God than the God of this Bible. And listen, to be honest with you, there's a lot of wacky teachings within the LDS movement. We could do an entire series on that one day. But to give you a taste of what I mean, the following is from the website churchofjesuschrist.org. Quote, Joseph Smith taught, it is the first principle of the gospel to know for a certainty the character of God. He was once a man like us. God himself, the father of us all, dwelt on an earth the same as Jesus Christ himself did. Changing God. Changing who God is. God was just like us. And because God attained, because God lived on an earth, and because God attained this exaltation, you and I, if we live right in this mortal life, then we can also be exalted, and they teach you can become like God. Does that sound familiar to anybody from Genesis 3? I'm just saying there's a lot of unbiblical teaching there. And to give you an idea further how God has been changed to fit what they want God to be, listen to this. They teach that their God is married to who they call the heavenly mother who gave birth to all the human spirits. Brigham Young back in the day used to teach God was polygamous and that he had different wives, different mothers of heaven. Changing God into who they want him to be. And because they say we all existed in the spirit before living on this earth, then only a relative few will actually end up in outer darkness because we are all, after all, God's children. They've completely changed hell and therefore, they had to change the God of this Bible into their own idea of God. And again, we could spend a lot of time dissecting that, but let me move on. The Seventh-day Adventists do not believe in a literal hell as taught in the Word of God. They believe in what is called annihilationalism. This is the teaching that after the final judgment, after the millennium, that there will be those who obviously are, are entered into glory, and the rest, they will just cease to exist, be annihilated. There'll be no wailing, no weeping, no gnashing of teeth. There'll be no hellfire. There'll be none of that of which the Bible clearly states. And what's interesting is all these religions say that the Bible is their source of their teachings. But they teach that the wicked will be permanently destroyed. They believe God's mercy outweighs His justice. And therefore, it isn't the nature of God to condemn sinners for eternity in the lake of fire. Instead, they teach the lost will simply cease to exist for all eternity. And they have corrupted the view of God. And I wish I had time to get into all this. But it, again, it's a whole other study in and of itself. But they have corrupted who God is through their teaching called the great controversy and the heavenly sanctuary. And they change what it is that Christ came to do. 
Christian science is all kinds of wacky. Christian science is so strange. Let me just get right to the point. They believe almost everything is just a state of mind. That heaven and hell are just states of mind. They don't actually exist, but it's what you think they are. They believe, quote, heaven is not a locality, but a divine state of the mind in which all the manifestations of the mind are harmonious and immortal. And hell is mortal belief, error, lust, remorse, hatred, revenge, sin, sickness, death, suffering, self-destruction, self-imposed agony, effects of sin, that which worketh abomination or maketh a lie. And then they go on to say, death is the belief in death. There is no death as humans are immortal spirit. After that, which we call death, spiritual development toward truth continues until all evil or error destroys itself. What? Now, they do not believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. And by the way, what they'll teach is, the reason you're sick is because you believe there's sickness. You're not really sick. You just, in your mind, believe you are sick. And there's not really evil. You just believe in your mind that there's evil. And so they wipe out hell. They do not believe Jesus was God in the flesh. They do not believe they were born in sin. They believe that all sin and sickness is a result of what you believe. And they teach that God is unconditionally love. And therefore, why could there be a literal hell? The Jehovah's Witnesses, taken from their website, jw.org, deny the existence of hell. They teach that death is the penalty of sin and not the torment of a fiery hell. And they say, God, quote, God does not even contemplate eternal torment. The idea that He would punish people in hellfire is contrary to the Bible's teaching that God is love. Now, do you see what I'm trying to say? When we take a clear teaching in Scripture of the one true God, and we say, no, 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 wait a minute, I don't believe what God had to say about hell. Now we have to take the character of God, and we have to say, no, He's not just. He's not holy. He's not going to take care of those who reject His Son. I don't know what we do at the end of the book when He pours out His wrath, but anyway. We don't believe that God would ever do these things because God is a God of love. The Bible is clear that God is a God of love. Amen? Thank God for that. But if you will analyze all of these false teachings closely, then you will discover that their belief in God's love trumps the concept of God's holy justice. Therefore, a, little, a literal fiery hell could not exist and it causes to change who God is and what it is Christ came to this earth to do. Instead, God and Christ just become what they want them to be. Now, I didn't intend for this message to come out this way. And we'll study this verse more next week. It'll be much more sweet. But I believe God first wants it to be clearly understood that He is the only true God. And other religious teachings which deviate from the clear teaching of the Bible are absolutely wrong. And I also believe we must establish the reason for eternal life. He says this is eternal life. Okay, what's the reason for eternal life? And that is because there is a literal place of torment called hell, which will one day be cast into the lake of fire. And can I tell you this morning, we have to come to terms with the fact that God is love, but God is also wrath. And we just have to come to terms with that. You see, I don't like that. Then you can change God into what you want Him to be. And you can change the fact that there's a literal hell. When the religions which cropped up in the 1800s denied the existence of hell as so clearly found in the Bible, they diminished the work of Christ. 
Because there is no place afterwards to really fear. There is no place of God's wrath. There, there is no hell. There is no lake of fire. So why did Christ die? Here's what a lot of them will teach. Not all of them that I mentioned, but I, would, I think at least three of them off the top of my head. Well, Christ was just our example in all things, and He loved God enough that He would give His life. Has nothing to do with the fact that you and I are sinners. Has nothing to do with the fact that we were born in sin and that we deserved the wrath of God. They diminish the work of Christ. But listen to Romans 5, 8, and 9. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood. Listen to this now. We shall be saved from wrath through Him. We learn from that passage in Romans 5 that God is a God of love and He's a God of wrath. We also learn that we were all born sinners. And that because we are sinners who have committed sin against a holy God, we are deserving of His wrath. We deserve to be in a lake of fire. By the way, let me just clarify this. Hell was not created for mankind to begin with. The Bible says in Matthew 25, 41, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, let me ask you a simple logical question. If I have everlasting life, and the Bible says that there's everlasting fire, how am I going to sit there and say, well, that fire is not really everlasting, but my life is? Do you see the contradiction there? Here's the reality. You can only serve one of two masters today. You can only serve God, or you can only serve Satan. And if you reject Christ as your Savior, then whether you want to admit it or not, you have thrown your lot in with Satan, and you will suffer the same punishment as the devil and the angels will. Therefore, while you may be condemned to hell, you have sent yourself to hell in rejecting Christ. Hell is real. Jesus spoke often about hell. It's the place where the worm dieth not. Which means you're always dying, but you're never dead. It's a place of torment. It's a place where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's a place of fire. Therefore, the plea for people to come to Christ is not so you can go to heaven in of itself. But the plea for people to come to Christ is because they are sinners with the sentence of the wrath of God abiding on them, and except they turn to Christ, they will suffer the wrath of God for all eternity. See, I don't like that. It really doesn't matter what our opinion is. That's what the Bible says. Listen, it'd be irresponsible of me not to tell you the truth. If we overemphasize heaven and salvation, then we de-emphasize our desperate and lost condition in the eyes of a holy God. In Luke 12, 5, it says, But Jesus saying, But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. You're just trying to scare me to be saved. That's not what I do. Y'all should know me well enough by now. But the Bible does say in Jude, Others saved with fear. What is eternal life? It isn't heaven. 
but it's knowing God. And if the Lord wills, I'll emphasize that next week. Eternal life is knowing the only true God. Which means any other teaching that takes away from John 17, 3 is false. There is a lake of fire where those who have rejected Christ will spend an eternity. What are you going to believe? The God of the false religions or the only true God? Only the true God can give you eternal life. Let's pray.